0: I always call myself a reluctant entrepreneur. I feel like I backed into entrepreneurship because all the other options were not appealing. It's really in your face when your partner might die. You're like, man, if we don't do this now, then what the hell are we waiting for?
1: So, boss man, we're still here in Barcelona. I've invited you to the couch of my podcast mm, studio. Very nice. I got two twenty-seven inch monitors in the background with the TMBA logo on them.
2: I got my shoes off. Lounge yeah. on your couch.
1: Welcome to the podcast. So today's guest is Ian Schoen, aka the Boss Man, aka the co-host of the Tropical NBA Podcast. Howdy. Let's get rolling.
2: By the way, I had to get rid of my Texas accent real quick when I got here. It's like all cool when you're in Texas and then you get to Barcelona, very international. You just picked up a Texas accent? Well, you know, I've been living in the South for a while now.
1: (laughs) All right. So we're in Barcelona now. Last week, we talked about how a couple hundred entrepreneurs came to town. Many of those entrepreneurs shared their stories on stage, which is a daunting task.
2: At a conference we threw...
1: And they did a freaking excellent job. Great job. Uh, Today's guest in particular mentioned how going through the work and sometimes the pain of creating a presentation helped him to make sense of the incredible ride he's on. So before we talk too much about him, I think it probably makes sense to let today's guest introduce himself.
0: My name is Andres Zuleta. I have a company called Boutique Japan at boutiquejapan.com.
1: So today we're talking about a travel company that creates bespoke and I didn't know what that word was. Like a <laughs> so bespoke is a custom yes. trip for a high end audience, and I won't give away too much of the story. But you know, Andres was on this podcast. He called a voicemail in like not so long ago. I vaguely remember that this year, boutique Japan is on target to make one point three million dollars in revenue. And let me tell you what I love about this story. Not only because Andres is funny and engaging and tells the story really interestingly, but we're not talking about like developing the next iPhone or the next killer app or getting startup funding or all these things. We're talking about $1.3 million of revenue for travel to Japan. And it's just not an excuse. If you're waiting for an idea to get started with a business or to start your next business, it's not the idea that's holding people back. Look, this is a travel to Japan. It's a line drive. It's
2: like the oldest industry <laughs> in the world practically, right? It's like for a while, I feel like we got away from travel agents and now they're like coming back into this style. I like it. But now it's more custom, right? It's interesting. When we first started our business, I remember, Dan, we had a travel agent to book our tickets because it was like legacy from the company that we're at. So you like had to go to this office in Los Angeles and you like pick up an envelope with your tickets in it. So old school. Yeah. One of the
1: cool backstories of Andres and part of the reason it was so fun to connect with him is that we shared the same
2: pain with him. Driving up the five, in San to work Diego,
1: And just the long, long, long commutes and how amazing podcasts were, being able to learn, listen, get inspired while you're otherwise trapped in that corridor. It's funny, tri- man. <laughs> I mean, we've talked to
2: several entrepreneurs that are born out of the belly of Southern California doing that drive. You know, part of the culture of the commute in Southern California is that You can't
1: afford to own any kind of real estate anywhere near your job, probably. Sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, like my dad walks home for lunch because he lives in the country. Mm -hmm. Makes a sandwich at home and walks back to work, but not in Southern California. Yeah. (laughs) So this episode, with all the links that we're going to talk about in this conversation, is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash boutiquejapan. So we started this conversation by asking Andres about... His initial reaction when we reached out to him and said, Hey man, your story is amazing. We would love for you to share it at our conference that's coming up. I got to give a shout also to Andres' mastermind members who helped encourage him to build a wonderful presentation, which went over really well.
0: At first, it was extremely daunting, and I almost backed out because about two months before the event, I was extremely busy just with work and travel, and I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I haven't done a presentation like this before. And I almost was going to back out, but then one of the dudes in my mastermind was like, you know, is this important to you to kind of talk about this stuff and and work it out, you know, kind of in the long term? Because, you know, in the short term right now, you're totally slammed with just business work. And thank God, I was like, yeah, it really is. The process of preparing just each iteration of the presentation kind of reflected my levels of understanding of our own you know, organizational structure, if that makes sense. So I feel like each time I revised the presentation after getting someone's feedback, I came to a deeper understanding of my own business. For example... Before I started preparing for this presentation, I had zero clear vision of what our organizational structure looked like in terms of people, in terms of resources. And just kind of having to think that out so I could clearly convey it to other people forced me to get kind of crystal clear about what role everyone was in and kind of what roles we need still moving forward.
1: Before we get into the backstory of Boutique Japan, it might make sense to set the scene in terms of like what the business looks like in terms of revenue and your employees and where everybody lives and things like that.
0: We started two and a half years ago, and currently we're a team of seven. I am a little bit nomadic at the moment. The business is based in California. I'm in Lisbon right now, and I'm going to be moving to Austin in the fall for several months at least. Our team members are all over the place. So we have a couple of them in the US. We have a full-time employee in California and a contractor in Montana. We also have one nomadic contractor who does a lot of marketing for us. She's in Barcelona right now, but she's all over the map. And then we have also people in Ireland, Singapore, and the Philippines.
1: So Andres, why do entrepreneurs like yourself come on the podcast like this? Why share your business story with others?
0: I think everyone's path is so different. And so just the more stories that I as an entrepreneur can hear on podcasts like yours, I find different things to relate to in everyone's story. For me, every time I have to tell my story, just kind of like preparing the presentation, I discover different things. And the other thing that really surprised me is that a lot of things that I take for granted that are just under my nose as things I do instinctively, other people may find fascinating, which in turn fascinates me. For example... My way of organizing SOPs in Google Drive bores the crap out of me. But other people were like, wow, that was just so awesome to see how you do that. Just because it's kind of cool to see inside someone else's you know, underwear drawer and be like, oh, that's how you organize your underwear.
1: It's worth saying standard operating procedure is what we mean by SOP. So these are the documents that you're writing out to let those part-time employees that live all around the world know exactly what they're going to do when they, say, respond to a customer service inquiry.
0: Pretty much, yeah, exactly. Our processes are pretty complicated, so I think that's another thing that maybe... I heard from a friend that he found our SOPs interesting because his company has similar procedures. Even though his industry is completely different, he does bookkeeping for like fitness companies.
2: Now, Andreas, tell us a little bit about why your process is so complicated. As I understand it, it's basically tailor-made travel plans for people that want to visit Japan. That doesn't seem very scalable to me. I don't even know how I'd write an SOP for that.
1: And before you give that answer, Andreas, it's worth mentioning that your minimum itinerary is $600 a day. That's ballin'.
0: So the minimum is 600 per person per day. So for a couple, it's 1200 per day. And that's kind of the the quote unquote basic trip, which is still really, really awesome. So why is it so complicated? So many moving parts. And yeah, scalability was something that I didn't really even think about when I started the company. So the way I'll just give you a really quick overview of the whole process. So someone contacts us through the website. We go through a qualification process to figure out if we're the right fit for one another. And there are, of course, SOPs for how to do that. And then let's say we're putting a proposal together for them. Since it's totally customized, you know, they're paying us the big bucks because we're not literally just taking something off the shelf and being like, how about this tour?
1: Right. So you're not just like, let's go to the robot show and eat some ramen, which is what I did last time I went to Japan.
0: The possible (laughs) permutations for any itinerary are basically infinite, but there is an 80-20 in that I think that 80% of people want to do about 80% of the same things, but it's that 20% of super high-touch personalization that makes people really happy with kind of the level of detail that we're offering them. So anyway, so we'll put a proposal together, and then it gets really complicated. So let's say they like the proposal and they book their trip. That's when the real work actually starts, and that's where the bulk of our SOPs are, kind of on the back end, the fulfillment process after someone's actually said, okay, cool, I love the trip, here's the money, let's do this that's when it gets crazy. So bookings with guides, with accommodations, making sure transport times are going to work, a ton of logistics and a ton of virtual paperwork. Not actual paper, but confirmations, PDFs, vouchers. It just goes on and on. So that's kind of where we're at, basically.
1: Do you send SOPs to the guides on the ground? Like, Are those guides working for other companies or are they part of the Boutique Japan family in some way?
0: Most guides are independent contractors, so they invoice us, basically. They don't work for us. They can work for basically anyone, but we do have you know preferred guides
1: that we just love. The first thing that jumps out to me about your business and my assumption, why people might find it interesting, is that you didn't really have an innovative idea for a business, which to me is pretty inspiring because I'm not good at business ideas. Were you worried that this wasn't an innovative enough idea or something new and different? Or how did you bring something new and different to the table?
0: So let me just bring back a little bit of old school tropical MBA. I was living in San Diego and I was working in Encinitas, which is North County, San Diego, but living in South Park, which is in the city. (laughs) I was driving down like the five. Yeah, the five. I was driving down the five, which is a highway in San Diego, as you know, and I was listening to your podcast and I was in traffic and it wasn't moving and you had something about Good Idea Glenn. And I was like, stop trying to be a good idea, Glenn. What are you actually getting paid for now in the real world? And how can you transfer that into a business? And I was like, oh man, I've been trying to be Mr. Like, Tim Ferriss, invent some random thing that no one needs for a year. And it just hit me right at that moment because I was working at a travel company that did kind of tailor-made trips to various countries, quite different than what we do, but I could transfer the skill set. You know, people had been telling me for the last couple of years, oh, you should start a Japan tour company. And I was always like, how the hell would I do that? (laughs) But yeah, basically it was that moment. I was really looking for an idea because even more of a kind of a little backstory tangent. On April 1st of that year, which was 2013, after kind of waffling for about a year, I had vowed that on October 1st, I would literally quit my job. That would be it. And I had to have a business by then. So this was like six or eight weeks into that period. So I just decided this is it.
1: Andres, I think it's worth digging a little bit back into that story. By the way, from Encinitas to South Park is a rut for me and Ian.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, it's so funny that this show was basically built on the frustration of that drive. And then you are (laughs) sitting there on that drive listening to the show. It's so funny. So that's pretty cool. Well, I have to say, having a commute forced
0: me to start a business because I just hated it so much. I mean, it was just kind of like the symbol of, wow, I really don't have control over my life. Like I have all these hours that I really wish I could do something else with.
1: We're just going to jump in here because I'm guessing... Here's what I was thinking during this part of the conversation, boss man. I'm like, all right, so you're bored with your job. But how do you go from bored with your job to running custom high-end trips to Japan? And one of the things that emerged was that on that long commute that we're also deeply familiar with, (laughs) that has been a turning point for so many of the listeners of this show. It literally is like this combination of commute pain plus
2: podcasts that have... brought us together what would i have been if i didn't have a 45 minute commute
1: i'm just glad we weren't listening to like howard stern and whoever else that whole time i'm glad we were listening to business podcasts so while andres is on that commute he decided to dig into his former life he didn't reinvent the wheel or like dream up grand scenarios of great new products he did what we did which is we asked ourselves what are people already paying me to do That's probably valuable because at least one person has market tested me as someone that's valuable. Could I take that experience in in my case, manufacturing experience, in your case, design experience, a little bit of web marketing? Could we take that skill set and then make money as an entrepreneur doing it? We don't need to develop an iPhone app, you know, or a startup or any of this crazy stuff right out of the gate. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, let's listen to how Andre's handled this. But I think the interesting bit for me is that. He didn't go back and do something crazy. He inventoried his history and sort of like revisited a previous version of himself and said, you know, maybe this can be a starting point.
0: I was living in New York and I had a quarter life crisis when I was 24. I just basically hit a wall, didn't know what I was doing. And remembered that I had studied Japanese in college and remembered that I had really liked it and started wondering, oh man, what if I could just go to Japan and really study Japanese because my life here sucks. I looked into that and figured out it was really easy, got a lot of support from family and friends and yeah, just moved over to Japan. But the way to fund my studying of Japanese was teaching English. Keep going. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I got a job with an English school first, but it was really robotic. And actually, I remember my first day of orientation, they actually said, see that number on that piece of paper? That's actually how we're going to refer to you. And this was literal orientation in Shinjuku in the center of Tokyo. I just moved to Japan yesterday, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get out of this company ASAP.
2: And so was your thought process then immediately, I'm going to start a company, or... What were you thinking?
0: No, no. So I was never entrepreneurial growing up at all. So my thought process was I have to find a new job. So I was looking and a few months later, I finally found a job, or rather I got an interview at this place and I went to their office in Shibuya in Tokyo. Really nice company. And then the woman was like, can you sing? And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, sing me a song. I was like, okay, well, I guess this is an interview. So I don't even know what I sang, but I think I sang the alphabet song. Really, really great. Great job, Andres. And got the job. And so they threw me into public elementary schools in Tokyo, which was amazing. I mean, it was a really, really awesome experience because it jumpstarted my Japanese since even though I was an English teacher, nobody really could speak English. So I got to speak Japanese
1: all day long. So at this point in your career, you're a teacher. Like, When does entrepreneurship come on the radar for you?
0: I did this for a year before I realized, okay, well, this is a fantastic job. I have amazing perks, four days a week, four hours a day, four months off a year. Really cool for a mid-20s person living in Japan who wants to travel to India, China, et cetera. But yeah, I started desiring something a little bit different. Wasn't entrepreneurial yet, though. So the thing that I think was a pivotal point was, all right, so I was working at this Mexican restaurant that's run by Japanese surfers in Tokyo.
1: This is how a lot of good stories start.
0: I was talking to the boss who was this just hardcore Japanese surfer who always used to fly down to Encinitas in Mexico. And he would just come back with a suitcase full of tequila and mezcal. But anyway, he was like, you should start a business helping Japanese surfers navigate California and Mexico because it's really hard. And I was like, hmm, that was the first seed that anyone had ever planted about starting a business. I'd never thought about it before. And it really, I mean, that actually led me to this. Believe it or not, I moved back to the States, and I actually tried to start that business. And absolutely nothing happened. I did a little market research. I took a Japanese surfer out for beers at Pizza Port.
2: Oh, yeah, Pizza Port. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Famous San Diego institution. So anyway, so my market research was,
0: yeah, I found this Japanese surfer, and I was like, hey, would you mind answering some questions for me? And after one beer, I was like, this is really fun, but Japanese surfers have no money. That's the whole point. A few weeks later I was at a party, a Halloween party, and I was talking to someone and she said, "Well, if you want to start a company, you should, you know, consider getting a job in that industry to learn how it works." And I thought that was actually fantastic advice, so I started looking for work in the travel industry, and that's how I ended up at the company where I worked for a few years.
1: And so at that company, you were gaining the valuable experience, but you were also like the frustration was growing, so what was like the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of you being employed?
0: So here's what happened. I mean, I actually really enjoyed working at that company. I had really cool bosses. I had really cool co-workers. Everyone was young. I got to travel for free to places like Galapagos and Okinawa. I mean, as jobs go, it was pretty awesome. I was also making good money. And after about a year or two there, I started realizing, wow, if I have this good of a situation and I'm still not happy because of the lack of freedom then I'm really going to have to do something by myself. The straw that broke the camel's back was that I started asking for things like the possibility of working from home, just flexibility-type benefits, and they just weren't forthcoming. That just made it really easy for me to decide I really have to do something.
2: Yeah, it seems like an interesting impasse, right? It's either therapy or entrepreneurship. <laughs> and So you chose entrepreneurship. But as a way to solve this problem that you were having, Andres, and explain exactly that feeling you had at that time. Where did you see that the grass might be greener on the other side? So I
0: was starting to get a little FOMO and just seeing all these people traveling the world and working from their laptops. I just wanted to travel more. I felt like I was giving all of my hours away and I just felt this constricting lack of freedom. I didn't understand why I wasn't allowed to work from home or when I wanted if I knew I could be as productive or more productive. And I actually had a chance to test that out one time because while I was working at that job, my girlfriend actually got really, really sick. And so it got to the point where I actually had to stay home a lot of the time or work from the hospital. And it just turns out that coincidentally, the month where I worked the most from the hospital, I broke all the sales records you know, for that company. So that's when I kind of knew, you know, I really, I'm onto something here.
2: So you're in the hospital with your girlfriend. You have what is, according to you, your most successful month ever. And then where does it go from there? Is there a breaking point with that employer? Or is that the moment that you decide I have to start this business tomorrow and you give yourself six months? i had already
0: made a decision to quit because I just realized if I didn't set myself a deadline that I was just going to keep trying to do like a side hustle forever and never just go all in. So for me, I needed to light a little bit of a fire under my ass. And so I thought about it for a second. I was like, well, if I quit my job in three months, I might not be ready. But if I set the deadline for a year, I mean, that's just so far away. So I was like, why not six months? I'll think of something. I hadn't thought of the specific idea yet. Like I said, I was still just like, I'm going to start a business I was really committed to that. I didn't just kind of do that lightly. And so then I just kind of had faith that it's like I
2: can figure something out. And so you had how much in your bank account? And on what day did you decide what the type of business was that you were going to start? Having made that decision on
0: April 1st, I think it was mid-May that we mutually decided because we started it together. When we quit our jobs, when we stopped working in October, we only had $18,000. That was six months to us. So,
1: How low did it get, Andres?
0: It got as low as about, I think, seven? It was pretty scary. We had a scary moment in Kyoto. So the first thing we did was sell everything and move to Japan after we started the company. And yeah, we were living in this kind of old wooden house in Kyoto, deep in the geisha district. And it got a little bit close to where I was still comfortable, but she was not comfortable with that number, understandably. We were actually, we had sales and we were growing, but I mean, 18,000 seems crazy to me in retrospect. That represented six months to us at 3,000 a month. I don't know, we just never thought we would fail.
2: And your initial thought was, I have to be in Japan and able to be able to fulfill... This kind of experience for people but i think you found that not to be the case as you're living in lisbon now right so the original idea was
0: to go start it in japan because it was kind of like starting with a bang so just go over there introduce ourselves to all the hotels meet some guides i already had a lot of connections there since i used to live there and since i'd been working in the travel industry for a while the idea was never to move there and always be based there It was more to pop in, and I spend three to four months there every year at this point, but I definitely don't have to be there. The whole point was to have the infrastructure set up so that we can run the business from anywhere.
1: Just to talk about, you know, the life experience of having somebody get sick and stuff like that. Like, do you feel like after having now you're part of the entrepreneurial community and you're hanging out with all these peers? Sometimes like I think it's framed up that you need to be like this opportunity seeker or like trying to change the world, but I actually see and hear a lot of stories that sounds more similar to yours, like it's like a motivation away from something negative, you know, like This is lack of freedom or something bad happened and therefore I need to change my circumstances.
0: Yeah, I totally relate to that. I always call myself a reluctant entrepreneur. I feel like I backed into entrepreneurship because all the other options were not appealing. And it's really in your face when your partner might die. Not that we ever thought she would, but, you know, people get really sick and life is short. You're like, man, if we don't do this now, then what the hell are we waiting for?
1: You found this community now of so many like minds. How's it different from the FOMO that you were experiencing earlier on? You know, like if you could send a message back to the FOMO Andres, what would you tell him about the future? The future is good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would say go travel like crazy, get it out of your system a little bit. And, you know, future Andres may want a little more stability than the nomadic lifestyle, but just go for it. I mean, I think a lot of us, as this group of people matures, you know, you hear a lot of talk of people wanting to settle down a little bit and I completely feel that you know I don't feel like a a true quote-unquote nomad I like the idea of having a base or multiple bases but I think we needed that you know both of us my partner and I needed to just kind of sell everything cut all ties and just go out into the world and then you know see what happens but I mean it was a fantastic experience
1: Do you mind if I ask you some technical questions about your business? Because I'm thinking of starting a high-end bicycle touring company.
0: Are you serious? That would be amazing.
1: (laughs) Well, I think your business is so cool because I think so many listeners have an expertise in travel and services, and I think you've done a really good job with that. So I want to ask you some questions about how you grew the business. Yeah, of course. Well, so the first thing that jumped out at me is that it seems like a lot of your leads are coming through SEO and the blog posts that you write. And I know it's this giant struggle for entrepreneurs to figure out how much time they should spend on content marketing because it's really hard to hire people to write good articles. And you have articles on topics like where to find the best sushi in Tokyo that are really good articles. So my question to you is, what's the strategy for getting really great content on your website?
0: When we started the business, as you know already, we had no money or a little bit of money, but I had a very deep knowledge of Japan. And so it was only logical to use the content to, you know, get people to the site. I took it really seriously, and I think you have to take it really seriously if you want Google to take you seriously. And you have to go into it with the mindset of, I am writing the, or at least a, authoritative piece on this topic. It has to be either the best or, you know, comparable to the best out there. And, you know, people always ask me, like, how many words should it be? I'm like, it should be as many words as it takes to you know satisfyingly address the topic you know are you leaving anything really important out and if so you know you need to go and improve it like we have an article on when to visit japan in the seasons i mean if you look at that i mean it's so detailed but it really only took a few hours to write you know in a couple of hardcore writing sessions because it's just a brain dump so the way i look at it is first you do just a brain dump then you look at organizing it for google and for your readers making sure it actually kind of has a logical organization. But yeah, I mean, that's such a tough question to answer because I feel like we've been really lucky with Google, but I also feel like we kind of have this relationship with Google where we have a feeling of what it would find helpful for its users, if that makes sense.
1: There's not going to be a single client of yours who wouldn't be interested in that article. So it's like part of it, I think, is putting yourself in your prospective client's shoes.
0: Right. I always kind of overlook the fact that some people forget about that core fact. I mean, if you don't know who your ideal client is, then you're screwed. I mean, that's the first thing, of course. That's the first actually item on our blogging checklist is, is this of interest to our avatar? If it's not, then stop. (laughs) Like we could write an article on Robot Restaurant, but that's not what our ideal client's core interest is. That might be like a tangential interest, but core interests are other topics like luxury hotels, really unique culinary experiences and things like that.
1: One of the cool things about your business, Andres, is that I think people could consider what their are experts at and pull together a similar services company relatively fast. How do you think about margins? Like when you first started, like how did you think about your cost structure and what you would charge your clients?
0: In our industry, there are kind of standard margins. So I had a sense of what the standard margins are to begin with. I have to say at the very beginning, I kind of disregarded that and we just looked at each trip on a trip-by-trip basis and we were willing to take kind of smaller margins at first as long as it was still worth our time to be able to get a few clients through the door. Basically, that's an ongoing struggle. I mean, I have little reminders to myself kind of every month and even in our spreadsheets and our proposal templates. Don't forget to get the margins up there. I mean, basically, it varies so much for trip to trip that we can't have just kind of one standard margin across all trips. You know, for example, for a certain client, their services may just cost way more than we anticipated. This leads to an interesting tangential discussion because people aren't coming to us for the cheapest prices, but it has to be reasonable.
2: And it's interesting too because a lot of the services that you're selling, you're essentially reselling. And if they found them on their own, you know the price can be very transparent in some ways. But you know the value that you're providing these people is being able to pull together all these experiences in, in a package. And I think it's interesting because I'd say Ian pre-selling the business exit money, like I wouldn't have necessarily appreciated a service like that because maybe I was on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of like what my income was. But now that it's a little bit higher, I definitely value these types of experiences. So with that said, you know, are most of your clients higher net worth individuals that don't mind spending margin on the experience?
0: Yes. And actually people are sometimes even very blunt with us when they contact us and they say, look, I want you to make money. I just want a reasonable price too. And we're like, of course, that's kind of the point of the business. We do prepare people for the pricing. So when I first started, we didn't have pricing on the website because I was really scared to have such large numbers on the website. I thought it would scare people away.
2: Yeah, I'm preparing for this interview, I was on your site, and I was scared. I saw $8,000 packages, and I just thought, wow, it's interesting. I've spent that much on a vacation several times, but when you put the number in front of me before the vacation, I get nervous about it. Yeah, and it's possible that we're
0: still scaring some people away, but I think that's okay because overall it, it helps our funnel. It helps you know the right people reach us. We spend a lot of time discussing pricing with the potential clients that we're talking to, even at the start, which I know goes against a little bit of some people's versions of sales psychology, but we don't want to be crass about the way we discuss it, but we just want to make sure that we're talking about the same things, if you know what I mean. And so people do come to us with the hope that we're going to offer them a well-priced trip, but understanding that there's a possibility that it might cost more than if they just arranged it themselves. But they're paying for you know, the chance to bounce all of their ideas off of us, be listened to, have someone suggest things that they wouldn't have thought of, and then, of course, the actual like doing all the stuff, which is the biggest pain for someone with a lot of money and no time.
1: I'm very curious about the sales process, Andres. Me and Ian, let's say we're going to go on a couple's trip. And we go to your website, we call up your sales team, you know, we bounce ideas off them, all this stuff. And you send me a quote and I'm like, whoa, Ian's never going to go for this. How does it work from that process of like sending the quote to closing the deal? Because I'm sure you're getting a lot of pushback from your clients. How do you close them?
0: That's an interesting assumption. Actually, we're not getting a lot of pushback from our clients because, for example, what you just mentioned should never happen. For us, I'm always trying to tweak the sales process so that we avoid any situation like that. So the actual ideal scenario is we start with just the basics. You know, For example, when are you traveling, what are your interests, and what's your approximate budget? We're not able to do kind of last-minute trips, so sometimes someone filters themselves out because they're planning too soon. Secondly, if their interests don't align with what we specialize in, then also we can't help. For example, if someone wants a trip that only focuses on robots and cartoons and, you know, Japanese-made cafes, then we're like, sorry, we're not actually that company, but we can refer you to this other company.
1: So you're not getting pushback on pricing because of why?
0: We ask people to tell us what their ideal budget is from the trip at the very beginning. We have three categories that people get to choose from. Luxury, boutique, or classic. So the classic ones are the ones that start at 600 per person per day. The boutique ones, which are described on the website and you know have some extra perks, start generally at, you know, 800 per person per day, and then the luxury trips are higher. So people already go in choosing which one, and that really helps people start preparing for what the cost might be. I see. We only send a proposal after a pretty lengthy qualification process where we make absolutely sure that the person is fully engaged in the process. We never send a quote. If someone just says, hey, send me a quote for this, we keep on kind of communicating with them until they fully engage. And if they don't, then we can't send a quote because, you know, we're not a quote company. It's a relationship. You know, the people that we work with, we end up being friends with quite a lot of them.
1: It's worth pointing out that on your contact form, like you can't even hit send unless you specify one of these budget levels. And I think that that's a very interesting way to productize your service, essentially, to say, look, this is what we're selling. We don't even want to talk unless you understand those terms.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to derail the conversation, but just kind of on that topic, when I started working at the travel company where I worked before, at first, I just didn't understand why, because I was still kind of backpacker mentality at the time. I was like, why would someone pay for this service? And it took me about a year or two of working there and actually going on a pre planned trip to Galapagos to just be like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, of course, this is totally different you know you 're not losing any time." And it can be done in a cool way. You know, I always say that our trips are for people who hate tours. What they hate our crappy tours. They hate touristy things, but they actually love like really cool, unique experiences. So there's a difference.
1: It's like having a friend in Japan who's willing to show you around.
2: That's what we're going for. Absolutely. So what's the logical end here? I mean, when you quit your job, you know, there was things that bothered you about that job and therefore it forced you into entrepreneurship We all become entrepreneurs, and then there's things that bother us about our companies. What's the next step for this Boutique Japan empire?
0: Well, I mean, we've gone from three to seven people involved in just a couple of months, so that's a painful thing right now. I mean, it's amazing, and I love it, but it's definitely one of the biggest challenges because we still don't have kind of a project manager or an office manager, so I am sales chief, HR director, CEO, etc., so... I'm working on, you know, fleshing out these roles so that I can wear less hats. You know, that's a difficult thing. You know, eventually in six months or so, I don't want to be the sales chief anymore. I want to be kind of out of the sales department as much as I enjoy it. I'm just still trying to find, you know, the best ways to do things. And I feel like that's important because I'm in the trenches and it's fun. I mean, I I like systematizing things that are hard to systematize and, you know, making sales SOPs. When I started, I was like, how the hell can I SOP qualification? But. You can.
1: And there might even be room for a dreaded term in our community, which is training. <laughs> you might have to spend months training somebody. I know Ian's done it when it comes to sales.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like sales so much of it comes down to discretion and not following a process. But anything we can do to automate things that don't have to be personalized is really important for us. Yeah. But I mean at the end of the day, it's a really high touch business, right? So you have to hire amazing people. You know, that's not where we save money. So what else is painful? I mean, I work a ton still. So not, not a ton by maybe normal standards, but I'm working about 40 hours a week. And it's quite hard work. And I'm, you know, learning stuff every day. So I think there's a lot of painful parts of the business, but I can see the light for sure. And the light is really through hiring great people more than anything.
2: I want to point out, too, that you guys have achieved some amazing results in just a very short period of time. You know, In the past, I think it took businesses a lot of times years to get to the million-dollar revenue mark. And when I say years, I mean five years. And you guys have essentially done it in, I think, 18 months, right? The timeline is accelerating for businesses like these. And I think part of the reason for that is just the information available. And it's just getting easier. Right? We're sharing with each other SOPs, process, roadblocks, things like that. So when you look to the next kind of shelf, do you look at it in terms of revenue or do you look at it in terms of how it can fulfill more of the things that you want in your life? I don't
0: actually look at it in terms of revenue, although I think the revenue is probable outcome of more success. But the way I see success is being able to work only on the parts of the business that I really enjoy. And the parts I enjoy most are business strategy and content at the moment. Basically, if six or 12 months down the line... I am only working on, you know, those parts of the business and everything else has amazing people in place and, you know, our structure is really organized and things are humming along. Then to me that's success along with keeping the core principles alive and, you know, not having our core principles diluted As our team grows and basically, I mean, our main core principles, one of them I learned from you was the concept of inside out marketing. I actually think I copied that from your SOD online two years ago.
1: So what does inside out marketing mean to you?
0: Well, it basically means if we don't have enough resources to take care of all our current customers, then we need to turn off the sales flow immediately and fix it you know, if you say that to entrepreneurs, like what, you're going to stop, you know, taking revenue, stop taking sales, what are you thinking? But in my mind, if we're at the point where we can't even take care of our current customers, that's a crisis. And so we need to devote all of our energy to that. Because apart from the fact that we just want to give them a good service, I mean, I think it's really investing in the future of our business in terms of goodwill, possible referrals, people having great experiences. I also think it's just kind of ethical, but but yeah, it doesn't scare me to turn off the sales flow once in a while. I mean, if you look at our website right now, you'll see that we're not taking any leads unless you're traveling in 2017 or later. You know, some people think it's shooting yourself in the foot, but our cash flow is fine. You know, sometimes you take on a little more than you can handle. You just have to prioritize and having that core principle helps us keep our priorities straight.
1: One more technical business question is... This idea of strategic partnerships and how you find them, I know you mentioned that you had a strategic partnership with people that sent you leads in the travel industry. I was also looking at your testimonials page wondering, you know, how often does Andres think about taking like a famous travel writer on a trip or something? That would be another form of partnership. So could you talk us through some of the partnerships that you've made and how they've worked out for you?
0: The one that you mentioned, the travel company that was sending us leads, was really key in our growth because... At that time, about a year into the business or so, we were getting one or two leads a week organically through SEO, and that's it. We had no other source of leads. We signed on with them, and they started sending us 10 leads a week. So even though they were taking a cut, it really helped us step up our game and get some sales in the door. We eventually stopped working with them because they wanted to micromanage us, and they were also taking too much money. Plus, our lead flow had gotten to a healthier place, Apart from that, we haven't had any real strategic partnerships. We do have referral relationships with a few companies in our space that we respect and who respect us. So, you know, if we're at capacity, we can send people to one or two other companies that we really love. And if it ends up working out, they might send us, you know, a small commission. But it's not about the money. It's more about goodwill and just trying to help people
1: when you sit down with your clients like after they went on a trip because i know that you've hung out with your clients after they went on a trip what do you guys like love about japan like what's like the oh my did you see x like that was amazing so like as someone who loves japan tell me what's worth loving about the place
0: food number one the food i mean people just love the food i think another thing is staying at a ryokan i'm not sure if you ever got the chance to uh, stay at a traditional inn that's an amazing experience
1: why Take us inside these strange places.
0: You leave your hotel in Tokyo and you go to Tokyo Station. You go get a bento box and a bottle of sake and you get on the bullet train. You take the train two hours and, you know, kind of the suburbs give way to countryside. You get off the train in a random town and then you hop on a bus or a shuttle bus. 20 more minutes go by and you get to this tiny little wooden building in the middle of a forest You get off the bus and a little old lady comes up and takes your suitcase and you try to say no, but she must take it. And she's wearing kimono, of course. You walk into the building and you take off your shoes. They take your shoes because you're not going to use them for like the next three days. You step up onto the tatami mat and you put on slippers. A little old lady walks you to your room and you sit down at a little table and she makes you green tea and gives you a little Japanese sweet and then she leaves and you take off all your clothes and you put on a Japanese robe, a yukata. Then you just chill out for a while, go hop in the hot springs. And then a couple of hours later, they come to your room and say it's time for dinner. And they take you to this little Japanese room. They serve you a cold draft beer and a crazy dinner. Multi-course, fish, meat, vegetables, soup. After dinner, you go back to the hot springs And then when you go back to the room, they've made your futons for you. They've laid out your sleeping (laughs) futons and you pass out at like nine o'clock. It's just a really fun experience.
1: One of the things about Japan that's fascinating given its global brand is that it can feel really untouristed when you're there. It seems like not a lot of people visit or that it's big enough that people seem to get dispersed.
0: Yeah, I think if you're in a really central place in Tokyo or Kyoto, then you'll see a lot of tourists around. But Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like if you just walk 10 minutes away from the main areas, then you might be the only non-Japanese person there.
1: Hey, boss man, let me do my job as a podcast host here. I got a note that says, if you want to read more about Andreas' story, this will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash boutique Japan. And let me say, if you have one of those fancy iPhones, I think you could just click the screen. I really enjoy this idea because for me it gets my imagination going. You know, you think about what you've been paid to do in the past, you think about your interests, you think about a very simple business idea that is just taking something that you already know and putting your own personal twist on it. I like how Andres invoked Shayna from EspressoEnglish.net and how, look, she's teaching people how to speak English. This is a down the center, straightforward business idea that's been proven. People want to pay for this stuff. And she just took her own unique teaching style, her own sense of style and how it should be done. Honestly, it makes me think of all kinds of options for businesses I could start because I know that, for example, I've been cycling a lot lately. Mm -hmm. There's lots of companies like Andres is in the cycling space, but there's none with my unique taste or vision or things that I think would be valuable to other cyclists, you know, and so that's why I thought this was inspiring, you know, it's like I can really, it gets my mind going about these ideas.
2: I think though in a lot of cases, people feel insecure about what they feel like is cool, You know, so you're like, yeah, I'd like to start a cycling company, does tours, and like, this is my take on what would make that cool. Right. Uh, During the process, you kind of lose steam because you start feeling insecure about whether or not it's actually going to be cool for these people. Right. It's like a lifetime of being made fun of for your (laughs) dumb t shirts or whatever, all comes back to you. And we undervalue our taste. I wish we could go back and ask Andres about this, but you get so much feedback on the first couple people that you bring over to Japan and show around that all of a sudden it doesn't even almost matter what your taste is, right? Because, yeah, I got to show them what I thought would be cool, but then they showed me all these things that right. they think is cool, and that's really what's important.
1: Sure, like you have a lot of assumptions going into it, and I'm sure the, the service will continue to evolve. So hopefully we can continue to follow the story of this business, Boutique Japan, from voicemail to speech on stage to coming on the show. We really appreciate Andres' presentation and taking the time to come to the podcast. Again, we'll post it at tropicalmba.com slash Boutique Japan. So. All right. That was fun. We're going to tease what next week's episode is going to be about. Do we know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to reveal it to you right now. Actually, you don't know, but I know. It's going to be the top five reasons to not sell your business.
2: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Too late, buddy. already sold it.
1: Stay tuned next week for the voice of regret. All right. Thanks for joining me in the pod studio, boss man. Thank you.